Welcome back to the Noggin Notes podcast. My name is Jake Wiskirchen. I'm super happy to have you with us today. And it's not because I'm going to do another mouth trumpet like I did on that episode uh, <laughs> last time. I'm uh, I'm actually just really happy because I'm doing listener mail. And I'm always flattered when people write in asking questions. I mean, I'm, I'm honored just to have a, a career where people seek out me to help them through life's difficulties. And now I get a format where I get to talking to a microphone and uh, hopefully reach, you know, lots of people instead of just uh, individuals one-on-one. So this is an opportunity for folks to write in and ask uh, questions, put themselves out there a little bit. And I think if they're going to do that, they deserve a, a thorough, thoughtful answer to each of these so that's what I'm going to do today. And if you notice, the time is a little bit longer on this episode than than the typical eight to twelve minutes. That's why, because I want to I want to give them some some deep, meaningful, robust examination because I think that's deserved. As always, the show is sponsored by Zephyr Wellness, and Zephyr Wellness is doing things in Reno, Nevada, in the United States, innovatively and philanthropically. I'm a co-owner, and I'm proud to be a co-owner. We're we're really making some moves and uh, helping a lot of folks, and we're uh, we're we're doing it the right way. I'm I'm proud to say that we're doing it the right way, uh, the ethical way, and uh, we're working hard. So, thanks to my co-owner Lindsay Garrison for helping support that endeavor. And also thanks to my wife, because uh, without her, none of this would be possible. Right now, as I'm recording this in the in the bowels of my home, she's upstairs putting the boys to sleep. So uh, thanks, babe. I appreciate it. So without further ado, we're going to move on to the listener mail. It comes through info at nogginnotes.com or info at zephyrwellness.org. The first one that I'm going to tackle here is a, a softball. Um, it, it just gets lobbed up, and it's really easy. So... Uh, what are the best mental health or self-help books you can recommend? And that's from Daryl in Wyoming. Thanks, Daryl, for your question. Um, right off the top of my head, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl is a really good one. And I also listed off a few more. Hero with a Thousand Faces by Joseph Campbell. Really, any of Joseph Campbell's reading will take you to a deeper spot. Um if you read Joseph Campbell and, and specifically this book, you you have to go slow because it's pretty thick, and you'll find yourself probably by uh, page three or four questioning whether or not you need to have a TV in your house at all because there's just so much more to be explored in the world and in the depth of oneself. And on the heels of that, I would also recommend Man and His Symbols by Carl Jung. I think that's a fascinating book, and again, anything that Carl Jung has produced is going to drive you to understand yourself a lot better so even though i see the 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 self-help slash mental health uh in inquisition here uh, i don't i'm not big into symptom treatment i'm not big into lobbing up some some coping skills or some some technique type things that'll just help you be happier throughout the day I'm, I'm more into helping people to find out the depth of who they are as human beings and i think that goes so much further beyond outward behaviors that uh, books like this are, are really important. Beyond that, I think anything written by Brene Brown is very good. She spells her name B-R-E-N-E uh, with an accent over the, the second E. Brene Brown. Uh, anything by Irvin Yalom is going to be really good. Um, Meeting the Shadow, by uh, it's, it's, it's edited by Connie Zweig and Jeremiah Abrams. Uh, Zweig is spelled Z-W-E-I-G. Meeting the Shadow discusses the, 
the part of yourself that you don't want to acknowledge but is absolutely there. I think it's a fascinating read. Power versus Force by David Hawkins. And again, anything by Hawkins is going to take you on a deep journey. Reality Therapy by uh, William Glasser, I think, is a really good read into learning about choice theory. Choice theory is actually another book by Glasser. And he talks about the, the five basic needs that drive all of human behavior, that being uh, power and control, freedom, fun, love and belonging, and then survival, and how everything that we do is, is out of meeting those needs. Uh, so, so check out Glasser's work. I, th- I think uh, that's pretty good. And then um, The Pursuit of Perfect by Daniel Siegel. I, I would recommend that, as well as Joy, Guilt, Anger, Love by Giovanni Frazetto. And then finally, uh, there's there's a, a pop culture book, or I, I, I should say a pop psych book. It's not grounded in research necessarily, but it's it's helped millions of people worldwide. And that's The Five Love Languages by David Chapman. I think that, uh, uh, by John Chapman, I'm sorry. Um, John Chapman's Five Love Languages is, uh, is fantastic reading. We actually had to do a grad school paper on The Five Love Languages and finding out what language it is that we speak and then what we hear. And I would recommend that for any couple. And along the same lines, uh, I know I said finally, but uh, for couples also, I think that anything that you can get your hands on by John Gottman, he's a, a professor researcher out of the University of Washington, but specifically the seven principles for making marriage work or that make marriage work, uh, I think by Gottman is, is really crucial for any couples. Uh, the, the Gottman's groundbreaking work has to do with finding out the, the things that help relationships, not necessarily fixing what's broken, but returning to the things that drew you together in the first place. I, I find that really, really useful for couples counseling. So the seven principles of make, uh, for making marriage work by John Gottman. Um, thanks for writing in. That's a, um, that was a pretty, pretty easy, easy answer because I'm about to dive into some other stuff here. Uh, the next question comes to us from a listener who's, uh, we, uh, he, he actually, it's a, he, he said, uh, you know, don't, don't share my name on air. Uh, I don't know if this is on air, I guess maybe if you're listening to it on Bluetooth, it technically goes over the air, but, um, don't share my name. Um, but, uh, the, the question is I try to consume podcasts, books, articles, TV shows, but how do I know when I need to see a mental health professional in person? Man, that is an awesome, awesome question, and I think that that really strikes at the core of what we're trying to do as a profession here is to to help people get the help that they need, and if I can say one thing, it is this. Please don't be afraid to reach out and connect with another human being because if you're struggling to get yourself in the door of a, a therapist office, I, I, I would submit that it's probably got something to do with emotional intimacy and the that there's a blockage somewhere that probably is inhibiting you from actually confronting a, a human being face to face. And I can I, I will talk a little bit more about emotional intimacy down the road in, in another podcast because it's on my list to discuss. But oftentimes what prevents us from having authentic human to human interaction is that 
risk uh, of of being exposed. So it's a, it's a lot easier, for example, just to take books and articles and podcasts and TV shows and d- digest them privately um, because you don't have to put yourself out there really. So uh, just by the fact that you've you've sent this question in indicates that you're probably inching closer to actually getting to a counselor or a therapist's office. Uh, and that and that's going to open up a lot of lot of doors. It is scary. I will absolutely validate the fear because it's scary to go in knowing that someone else can possibly see in you what you're not interested in seeing at that time, or maybe you just don't know is there, or possibly don't want to acknowledge is there. And those things are all called blind spots. And we all have blind spots. I certainly have them, even though I do this for a living. I have blind spots, and um, when when they get pointed out, it shakes me. It, it it absolutely rattles me to my core. So, I would say that if you're if you're considering getting into a, a professional counselor or professional therapist in person, uh, that's the time to go do it. How do you know? It's when you're considering it. Um, a little, a little tweak to what I just said there is that if you're living in a in a rural area where resources are not available, then uh, obviously transportation might be a consideration. You know, time off work and you know, cost and that sort of thing. But um, I, all those aside, assuming that you have access, I would say that you know when when those things the the books, the podcasts, the articles, the TV shows aren't working and your your symptoms aren't abating or you find yourself battling the same problem for weeks and months or years on end, then um, then I would say that that is also a time to, to go seek out a professional. So I, I hope that helps you out there, Van. Um, it's, it sounds like you, you've really given a good effort. Uh, I can tell by the way that that question is phrased that you've given it a good honest try. And uh, I think the the vulnerability of walking into a therapist's office is something that needs to be considered. And certainly you can, you can address that as you walk into that person's office, say, Hey, you know, I listened to this podcast and I wrote in and the guy answered my question. And he said that I might have a vulnerability problem. And if that therapist is, uh, is, is on his or her, her game, uh, they'll be able to meet you where you are and absolutely be able to walk you through that. So, uh, that all being said, when you go to the counselor's office or the therapist's office, and I use those interchangeably, so you know, don't don't think that there's a difference there. I just use them interchangeably. But um, when you go into that counselor's office, uh, please look for uh, for the connection. Make sure that there's a good fit between you and your counselor, because if the fit isn't there and you don't connect and you don't jibe, you know, really within one or two sessions, uh, please walk. And I, I invite all my clients to do that as soon as they come in, too. So we, we have the intake, and we do the, the assessment, and we have a conversation, and I conduct my interview. And at the end of it, I, I ask them, you know, open, open-ended, open hey, if you want to come back, you're more than welcome. But, uh, you know, if, if, you're, if you're hesitant, go ahead and take some time. I'm not, I'm not a high-pressured salesman. This is not, this is not used car lot. Uh, you know, what, what's it going to take to get you into physical or, you know, psychological health today? Uh, that's, that's not what we do here. So, uh, that we want to respect autonomy and I want you to be empowered enough to respect your own autonomy, to choose the right person, not just any person who happens to uh, pop up on your search engine, make sure you choose the right person. 
and uh, you'll know because the the energy between you will will be there or it won't. So trust your gut in those circumstances. Don't keep pursuing therapy with a with a person who's um, who's not well aligned or maybe pushing you a direction you don't want to go or or uh, not not listening to to your requests. So uh, that's a whole other podcast I could probably do too. So. Um, I hope that, uh, I hope that helps out. And, um, if I can give you one little, uh, tidbit on the way, please understand that when most people come into therapy, it ends up being much faster and more effective because they're in person, not because they're having to try to riddle out whatever is being said to them through a book or an article or a TV show or a podcast, and then try to apply it because you have somebody right there next to you answering those questions live and, uh, walking you through the process, uh, explaining how you can apply this stuff. You're not having to, to guess your way through it. It's, it's a, a good analogy, I think, would be to uh, envision a, a live, in-person college course versus an online course where you're having to do all the stuff on your own in a didactic format. You have to read the chapters and digest the information and then apply it to whatever paper you're going to write. In person, in a, in a class setting, the professor is there able to walk you through the process and answer questions as you go. So that's, that's a, I think a really good metaphor that's analogous to therapy in person versus trying to do it on your own. So, uh, let's see. The next question is from Sam. Uh, Sam, I can't tell from this, whether you're a guy or a gal, I guess it doesn't really matter, but, uh, Sam writes my background I come from a Native American heritage, says that people don't show emotion unless they're quote-unquote weak. I'm wanting to grow out of that and live more congruently with how I feel, especially as an example to my kids. How do I get there so that I'm able to identify what I'm feeling and how to respond in a healthy manner? This is an absolutely excellent question, and I appreciate that you've written this in because the insight that it takes even to face this type of thing is really remarkable. So um, the first thing I want to I tackle is that this challenge that people face about not wanting to show emotion unless they're, you know, quote-unquote weak doesn't just come from Native American culture. Uh, it, it comes from all over. I've, I've worked with folks in all different stripes from all different demographics, and this is a recurring theme. And if anything, I would say that it's... Um, it's probably Western. Uh, ah, no, that's not even true either. I, I wouldn't say that. So scratch that altogether. I would say it's just individual based on the family. So if your family tradition has said, don't show emotion, and emotion uh, showing is weak, the implication there is that weak equals bad. Weak does not equal bad. Weak equals weak, and there's a reason for that. And if you think back to the the introductory episodes on emotional functioning that I did, when we feel something, we don't always necessarily have control over whether or not we feel it. Hence, we are in a position of weakness. If we can't control it, then of course we're weak. That's how emotion works, and it's by design, because our brains are set up to respond to an environmental stimulus that's a, that, that then says, go do something to deal with that. We don't have a choice on whether or not we feel something. We only have a choice over how much and how long we feel it. So if culture in your family has said, don't display emotion, what you're really doing is you're saying, I'm not supposed to interact with my environment. And that's really, really dangerous because 
you may not react uh, appropriately to your environment or bare minimum because we're all set up to interact as human beings on an emotional connectivity level you're going to fail to have authentic deep meaningful relationships so um this almost becomes a a crippled emotional state uh, created by spoken and unspoken rules passed down from generation to generation is just being this is how it is Uh, Carl Jung has a word for that, and it's called an introjection. And I will do a series on Jung in the future, but the word introjection simply means an unquestioned belief or assumption. And in this case, the unquestioned belief is that you don't show feelings. So now that I'm done explaining that, I want to tackle the question. Um, How do I get to the point that I'm able to identify what I'm feeling and how to respond in a healthy manner? Well, that's, that's two parts. One is how do you identify well, I'd say go back and listen to the podcast, obviously, and uh, align what you're feeling in your body with the environmental stimulus that triggered it. If you can do that, you can reasonably, logically determine what you're supposed to be feeling in response to that stimulus. If you want to, you can do some homework about this and just watch a movie and know that what you're seeing is purposely portrayed to elicit some sort of emotion from you. Now, I wouldn't watch a movie that's uh, maybe a, you know, a comedy or a, or, a, or, or a bad movie. I wouldn't watch a bad movie either. I'd watch something that's maybe nominated for some awards or at least has a good popular following because in those movies, and Disney movies are actually really good at this too, cartoons tend to elicit a lot of emotion. So I might suggest uh, watching a cartoon movie or a Disney movie because they really run the emotional gamut in most of their movies. And that's by design. It's it's to draw the viewer in so that they keep watching and then uh, you know eventually go buy their merchandise and you know uh, stuffed animals for kids and so forth because you now have an emotional attachment to the 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 plot that unfolded in that movie. As the movie goes, and here's the homework, as the movie goes through, watch what happens from a completely logical point of view. And I'm not saying don't try to not feel. What I'm saying is just analyze it as if you're a detective on a, on a crime case, watching what happens. So, for example, the opening scene in Finding Nemo. Um, and almost all, all Disney movies have, uh, have like an absent parent or someone who dies. Uh, I don't know what that's about, but I guess it's to set up the rest of the, you know, the, the movie. But in the opening scene of Finding Nemo, spoiler alert, Nemo's mom dies. Nemo hasn't even been born yet. He's still an egg. And his, and his dad scoops him up and takes him, and, uh, and he's born, and then he's raised, and he becomes a, a, a boy, a young boy fish. And uh, the movie evolves. So in that moment, if you look at mom's sudden uh, death or capture, uh, I think she gets eaten by a shark, um, what would a reasonable person conclude would be the emotion associated with that event? If you said fear, that's appropriate. If you said sadness, that's also appropriate, depending on your perspective. Fear would be, I don't want to get eaten by a shark. Sharks are scary because they ate my my wife, if you're the dad, or my mom, if you're the kid, who maybe later hears the story about how his mom died. Sadness would be the disappointment of losing mom too early in life. Then rewatch that scene. You can rewatch the scene and just watch it as though you are the fish. If you're Nemo's dad, because Nemo's not born yet, if you're Nemo's dad, what are you experiencing if you're the fish? And wherever you feel that in your body, associate that with the event 
And now you've learned. Now you've learned how to identify fear or identify sadness. And if tears come to your eyes, that's okay. Um, especially if you're watching it with your family and around you are people who are, you know, ostensibly telling you that you're not supposed to display emotion. Go ahead and display it. Uh, let them call you weak and say, yeah, you're right, I am weak because I'm, I'm watching this movie as though I'm the fish. What would you feel if you're the fish? And if they give you any answer other than sad, uh, well, you, you know that they're lying. <laughs> I tease, but, but we really should feel something when we see the death of somebody we love. So um, that's, a, that's a great way to how to identify what you're feeling. And you can do that over and over with all 10 emotions, and then, and then uh, after a while you'll be able to branch up. Now the second half of that is how do you respond in a healthy manner. I would submit that if you notice the emotion, fully embrace it, tolerate it for what it is, and it only takes three to nine seconds because after that the event is over. Uh, Nemo's mom can only die once, and that's it. If we return to that sadness, it's because we're thinking about it. We're returning our attention to that. It's not because it's happening over and over and over again. It's because we're continually reliving it. So fully embrace it in the moment that it's there and then let it go and move on. That's the healthiest way to do it. I understand that's an oversimplification because sometimes people encounter tragedies uh, in their lives and they are overwhelming. And I'll get more into that later, but in a nutshell, if you think back to the wave analogy of emotion that I used uh, earlier on, if emotion is a wave, there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. That wave also has amplitude. So think of a scale, uh, uh, 0 to 10, for example. Maybe we should say 0 to 100, so there's more nuance in between. Um, as a as a toddler, you might experience a sadness wave of uh, what most adults would see as a maybe a one or a two if you get your pacifier taken away. However, a toddler has never experienced that before, so from the toddler's perspective, that may be an 85. If the toddler wants to, to suck a chew on the pacifier and it gets taken away, toddler's going to freak out. Now, as the toddler rides through that wave, and hopefully the parent doesn't give the pacifier back and bail them out of that process as the toddler rides through the wave they'll get to the other side and eventually realize hey life moves on i didn't get my pacifier back and i'm okay the earth didn't just spin off its axis because i didn't get what i wanted now imagine that toddler grows up the pacifier goes from uh, you know being taken away uh, to you know the next disappointment is you don't get the pop tart and the next disappointment is something else uh, you know uh, maybe the the dog dies at age 7 and uh now you're at age 10 and uh the teacher looks at you wrong and gives you detention because you threw something at another kid and uh then at age 13 the girl that you like doesn't doesn't like you back and so the the wave amplification moves from one or two all the way up to 17 to 28 to to you know all on up the scale if you're not coached to ride through each of those waves knowing that there is another side to it and that you will be okay then if you're hit with tragedy that bumps you up to a 90 you're simply not prepared for that so how do you respond to a 90 in a healthy manner when you've only practiced 17 to 20 you can't and that's typically what we call trauma. When people experience trauma, that's what we're talking about. The emotional wave that they encountered from the environment you know, throwing something at them was just bigger than what they'd practiced. So how do you get there? Uh, I would say practice it. How do you practice it? 
put yourself in predictable situations or imagine yourself going through things and notice where it is in your body so that the next time it happens, you can notice that in your body again and say, aha, this is, this is sadness or this is fear. Uh, this is this is anger. I know what it is. The next half of it is, what do I do about it? And I would say, ride the wave, analyze it, see if it's useful, uh, see how you respond, and then uh, ultimately communicate that to your loved ones. Great question, though, and I, and I really appreciate that being asked. Next one up is also, you know, it also has to do with tragedy, actually, and, and, um, and how do you deal with uh, big events in your life. So, this one comes to us from Wisconsin, and John from Wisconsin says, I just had a person in my life, uh, sorry, I just had a person in my family die unexpectedly. Why am I so angry and numb, but everybody around me seems so sad? Why can't I cry? Man, I I just appreciate that. <laughs> I, I thank you for writing in because this is really hard. I, I just uh, I wish I could take away your pain. I can't, and uh, I don't like to say I'm sorry because even though that's the the, the popular response, sorry is an apology, and uh, it's not a validation. It's an expression of pity, and I don't want to pity you. Nobody nobody needs pity. Pity doesn't help. Empathy helps, and uh, so I. I, I hear you. This is a tough time. I want to validate that, and I, I really appreciate you reaching out because um, it is tough to go through a sudden, unexpected death. Uh, so I'm not sorry because I don't have anything to apologize for because I'm not at fault. That would be a guilt function or a shame function. I'm not associated with that. So instead, what I want to say is, uh, that sucks. I hear you, and it sounds sounds shocking and and incredibly devastating and sad. So. Um, to the why question that you ask, because this is still a podcast and I have to answer it. Why actually is, uh, is a really good question. We always want to know why. Why, however, in the midst of a tragedy, hits the wrong part of the brain. Why gives a logical answer. It gives a logical conclusion. And when you're experiencing emotion, which is in the limbic system, that's the wrong part of the brain to address. So we can ask, why terrorism? Why did my loved one die unexpectedly? Why do the kids bully me? Why did my dad mistreat me as a, as a child? Why, 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 why? And we'll get answers to those. Why terrorism? Well, there's a fundamental belief in some fringe religions that, or, or just fringe ideologies in general. It doesn't have to be religious. It could be political. Fringe ideologies that say, if somebody doesn't agree with you, they, they must be exterminated. They must be killed. Okay, now I have my answer to the why, but it doesn't make the pain go away. Uh, similarly, why did, why did uh, so-and-so die unexpectedly? Well, they had an aneurysm in their sleep or had a heart attack. Okay, that's logical. It answers the why, but it doesn't take the pain away because the pain comes from the middle or rear section of the brain and the limbic system. They're, they're not talking. The, the frontal cortex and the, and, the, and the limbic system aren't connected to each other. So we can continue asking why. Why did my dad uh, you know, mistreat me as a youth? Well, because he was taught how to mistreat people by his dad and, and his dad by his dad and so forth. Okay, there's the logical answer, but it doesn't doesn't satisfy. So the way that we, we want to get through this is we don't want to ask why necessarily, because I can give you an answer. Why are you so angry and numb, but everybody else around me seems sad? I can, I can give you a logical answer to that, that you know, based on speculation. I don't know you, but um, I could reasonably conclude something. But it's not going to take away your pain. And so what I'm reading through this is help me solve what I'm feeling. Help me riddle through it so that I can 
arrive on the other side in one piece. For that, I would say you have to validate. So um, I, I'm, I'm seeing angry and numb in comparison to others who are sad and then an inability to cry. And first of all, and this may seem a little bit um, flippant, but it's not. It's not glib. Emotion manifests differently in different people, and, and certainly trauma does. There is no timeline. There is no order of steps. It is not at all linear. And even though there's been research and books written on you know the steps and stages of uh, such and such, you know, trauma or cr- grief or whatever, it does not necessarily go in that fashion for everybody. There are generalizations that we can make, but that's not necessarily true for all people. So while your kid is sobbing uncontrollably and you're staring into a, an abyss, not knowing what sense to make of anything, it's possible that in a few weeks that inverts. Uh, you're sobbing uncontrollably and your kid is staring into an abyss. And that's perfectly normal. Uh, and again, I will, I will say, I don't know if I've said this before on the podcast, but if a human being has done it, it is therefore human nature. So if any human being has had an experience, you therefore have the capacity to have that experience as well. So uh, it's not just you. You're not alone. Uh, You're not the only one who's been angry and numb. Well, quote unquote, everyone else around you seems so sad. I guarantee it's not everyone else. Uh, In fact, those may be tears of anger and not sadness. So um, I caution you against, uh, you know, making generalizations too. So um, hang with it. Analyze the event for what it is. Sudden death of a loved one is absolutely crushing. It's crippling. It's sad. It is It is anguish at the extreme end of sadness because it's sudden and it's unexpected. It's also surprising. You may have a confluence of emotions going back and forth depending on where your, your thinking goes. Um, you may be afraid for the other family members affected, so there may be a fear involved. But again, depending on where your focus is, if it's your personal loss, if it's the worry about other people, if it's um, the, 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 the anger at, at uh, God or the universe for taking this person away from you, you may go back and forth among several emotions uh, based on whatever you're, you're thinking about at the time. So I would encourage you that... Um, in this moment, which is very, very challenging, just validate yourself. So if you can notice what it is that you're feeling, whether it's angry, whether it's numb, whether it's sadness, whether it's shame or guilt, or you think you should have done something, or it doesn't matter. In that moment that you're feeling it, say, it's okay. Because it is. It can't be any other way. It has to be okay that you feel what you feel, because otherwise you wouldn't be feeling it. It's okay to feel that. And then embrace it fully And know that it will be gone at some point too. Because all experiences, including emotions, have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And you may be right in the thick of it right now, brother. But I promise you, it's going to end. At some point, it will end. And if you can know that intellectually, then maybe you can embrace it emotionally. And then you get your why. Why am I feeling this? It's just your time. It's just how that happens right now. For you. Not for anybody else just for you. So embrace that because this is life. This is what, I know it sounds really weird, but this is what enriches life. Emotional experience enriches life and it makes us more robust as individuals so that we can then go out and connect more with different individuals, different human beings and say, yeah, I've, I've been there. I know what that pain is like. Let me help walk you through it because 
You don't know that in six months, somebody else might have the same thing happen to them. And if you've skirted it, if you've shoved it down, if you've avoided it, if you've bottled it up, if you pretended that it didn't happen or whatever, just to try to maintain whatever you need to maintain in the face of whoever you think you may need to maintain it in front of, the next time that rolls around, you're not going to be able to speak to it because you haven't actually tolerated it yourself. And this kind of residue that I'm just, that I'm describing right now is what leads into mental illness like depression because you succumb to it because you don't actually embrace it. Most people that I deal with who are depressed, they say, I'm sad, I'm sad, I'm sad, I'm sad all the time. And my counter to that is you're actually not sad enough. If you were sad enough at the initial thing that made you sad, you wouldn't be here depressed. Chances are what they did was they only sort of skirted the sadness of the thing that caused it. They didn't actually embrace it and go deep with it and then let it go and leave it where it's supposed to be, which is in the past. But while you're in the middle of it, don't avoid it. Go headlong into it and say, yep, this is happening and I have a right to feel this way because if I didn't, my brain wouldn't be telling me this stuff. Um, I hope that helps. Please follow up with questions. If you have them, I'll, I'll try my best to, to respond. And um, I I think we've gone on long enough now to give you a taste of uh, what listener mail is like. This is how I plan to do it. I don't know how other people plan to do it. But um, I certainly invite more feedback and more more questions because I love doing this, man. I, I really love doing this. It's 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 a great honor and a pleasure to be able to serve the community in this way. And um, I hope this helps people. If you want to reach out again, the the email addresses are info at nogginnotes.com, info at zephyrwellness.org. You can reach out to us on Facebook. Uh, We won't respond. It's not a crisis line, obviously. So if you're in crisis, please use the appropriate avenues for that. And um, again, this isn't meant to be a substitute for, you know, professional psychotherapy. It's just, it's just a quick hitter to help people kind of get their ideas, uh, you know, straightened and their minds around difficult subjects and maybe, maybe just spark a little interest. So, um, this is a heavy show and I appreciate that. It's, uh, it's not always going to be heavy, but, uh, Hey, you know, life, life is sometimes heavy. And, uh, if, if it weren't, it wouldn't be much of an adventure now, would it? Thanks for joining in, and uh, on behalf of the Noggin Notes team and uh, the Zephyr Wellness team, and definitely on behalf of my wife who puts up with me doing this, uh, I thank you. Uh, Thank you for joining us on the journey, and I wish you great mental health. Take care. 